Normally, we don't talk about Bruno. At least, that's what Encanto tells us. Unfortunately, that's not the case this time, because we're going to have to talk about the return of Bruno. Sit back as we attempt to unlock the Da Vinci Codex to prove to you that 1991's Hudson Hawk is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Now, I am super stoked for this one because not for the movie. Not for the movie, but joining me on the show today is my best friend for longer than grudge ever existed. Morgan, welcome to the show for the first time. How you doing, man? Hello, you're going to make me blush with an intro like that. Hello, <laughs> happy to be here finally. Okay, I have to ask because when we were talking about getting you on the show and I said, well, what movie do you want to do? You mentioned yeah. Hudson Hawk. Why, yes. why this movie and why do you hate me so for making me watch this? No, no, no. It's a fantastic movie. Now, part of it is I have like really good memories of, of the time that I saw it. It was a really bizarre little story. Um, but also, uh, I watched it before any of the reviews came out. And I formed my opinion before anybody started panning it. As the reviews came out and there was like over budget and a terrible movie and they overdid everything. I was like, what are you talking about? That was a delightful film. Uh, and so I have been a staunch supporter of Hudson Hawk ever since. Okay. So we, you know, you're going to have to tell the story though. Of so what, the story what goes like this. The, the movie, the, the movie release date for this movie was um, May 24th. Uh, what was it? 1991. My birthday is May 23rd. On uh, approximately May 20th, I was walking home from school in the rain, uh, a sullen teenager, and as I was staring at my feet, I found a free pass to the preview uh, for two people on the 23rd. And I was like, oh my God, my birthday present arrived in the rain. Uh, so I picked it up out of the rain, uh, and I was dating, uh, do you remember Gwen? I was dating Gwen at the time. I, I do, yes. Uh, and she was coming into town, and so I said, great, I have a surprise for us. We're going to go to a movie preview. Uh, and so, you know, we went and there was, you know, press and all of these things. And we, you know, just happened to be these guys in the back with the pass. Uh, and it was a great deal of fun. Uh, the audience was very lively. I glowed about the movie as we walked out of the theater and Gwen said nothing. And I was like, oh, oh wow. you didn't like it? She said, yeah, no, it was, <laughs> it wasn't particularly good. Uh, it wasn't a particularly good experience for her, but I had a fantastic time and I've been in love with the movie ever since. I, I do have to make you feel old and doing so I'm going to make myself <laughs> feel old. You do realize that this movie is 31 years old this year, which means that you yeah. and I have known each other for over 31 years. So we have uh, known each other for over 31 years. That's, that's a little ridiculous. Exactly. I think I can feel my hair turning grayer and grayer as I mentioned that, but before we uh, get, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into talking about this movie, it is time to take 1991's Hudson Hawk and trailerize it. If you thought Bruce Willis doing an album in the 80s was a bad idea, wait until you see what happens when someone lets him and his composer buddy write a whole damn movie. It's an hour and a half of inside jokes with a plot that can best be described as sort of there. 
Watch as a cavalcade of top-notch 90s talent bottom-feed their way through the film that took the shine off of TriStar. Bruce Willis is Hudson Hawk. Rated R. I think I got that covered now. <laughs> that was... <laughs> that made me laugh. Um, not only because that's a pretty accurate description of what happens throughout the whole movie, but I owned that album by Bruce Willis with The Return of Bruno you, you on vinyl. There was a second album. I know. There's I just looked it up one. on Spotify this morning. I was terrified. Wait, it's, it's on Spotify? It's on Spotify. Oh, you know what I'm doing once we're done recording this? I am subjecting, I am subjecting Carrie to this album. You absolutely have to. I mean, it is, it's, it's up there with Why Can't Tori Read in terms of albums that I am I am not ashamed to say I really enjoy. Hey, I like Why Can't Tori Read. That is a phenomenal album, despite the Tori Amos teased up <laughs> 80s hair with a sword behind her head on the album cover. You have to see this album cover to believe it, listeners. Uh, so this movie, Hudson Hawk, stars Bruce Willis, Danny Aiello, Andy McDowell, James Coburn, Richard E. Grant, Sandra Bernhardt, yes. an almost unrecognizable David Caruso, and I the, know, Kit Kat. the one and only Mr. Stallone himself, Frank Stallone, the other That's Stallone, the right? However, this movie does have an almost starred cast list. Now, in the role of Anna that was played by Andy McDowell, the original actress that was supposed to play her character was Isabella Rossellini. She was actually cast and then had to back out. The role then went to, and I am going to apologize because I'm pretty sure I'm probably going to butcher this name. Marushka Detmers was cast, but she backed up apparently due to back problems. And then Andy McDowell got the part. Now, I am not going to lie. I am not familiar with the work of Marushka Detmers, but can you actually <laughs> can you actually picture? No, is that not is that not somebody you go out to go see? Uh, no, and no. However, I, to the point of I did not even know that actress existed until I did my research for this film. However, can you honestly picture Isabella Rossellini as Anna? Yes, I can. I can totally picture it. It would not have been as good because uh, <laughs> Isabella Rossellini is a good actress, but so is Andy McDowell. But but so is Andy McDowell. The thing about Andy McDowell's performance, and it was something that struck me in my most recent watching of this film, uh, is that she, although she can play that, that somber leading lady, she can also play silly. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can't get into the silly of this film, you would have stuck out like a sore thumb and it wouldn't have worked at all. But the film is silly and the actors know it's silly and they're being silly the whole way through. Uh, and Andy McDowell pulls that off and she brings this lighthearted romance comedy feel to the whole thing through her silliness. Mm-hmm. This movie was directed by Michael Lehman. Uh, this was his third ever film that he directed. His first was Heather's. So coming off of a, a really good dark comedy and then jumping into this um, bit of a downhill, you know, <laughs> Just a bit. Well, the resume says it should have been, uh, you know, a little bit more than it mm-hmm. was. Now, listeners of this podcast will 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 recognize the name of Michael Lehman because we've talked about him before because he directed Airheads. Uh, he also directed The Truth About Cats and Dogs, which I absolutely love that movie. Of course, I also like yeah, I, I like Jean Garofalo. You can't go wrong with her. 
as mentioned in the in the trailer eyes, this was actually the story for this movie was written by Bruce Willis and Robert Kraft. Now, before you start sitting there going, the what? New England Patriots fans, sit down. It's not the owner of the New England Patriots. It's a different Robert Kraft. Let me explain. Robert Kraft is a composer, and he's done music for a ton of different movies. Uh, It was actually in charge of uh, film scoring for Fox Corp and all that. Um, If you've ever watched uh, Score, it's a documentary on music scores. He's heavily involved in that. He Hmm. He was playing at this club with it with his with his with his group and then all of a sudden out of the blue in the crowd someone pulls out a harmonica and starts jamming with him that someone is one bartender bruce willis because apparently bruce willis just loved all the music that robert Kraft was doing so the two of them um, basically Robert Kraft was like, okay, you got, you're cool. It's all good. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to let you kind of join in on this and you can write the lyrics for this song. And the song was called the Hudson Hawk. So they basically okay. wrote this song that was the, the, the beginning of these two characters that were eventually played by Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello. And apparently it's one of those things where they were like, you know what? If one of us is ever in a position to make a film, we're going to make this film. We're going to make the Hudson Hawk. Q Moonlighting and Die Hard and Bruce Willis has got you know all this clout and he makes the Hudson Hawk with Robert Kraft. I am I, I love this story. Um but it's one of those the things script, where like Yeah. <laughs> the script plays that that's how it came about. It looks like a bunch of friends got together on a weekend and made a movie. Mm-hmm. They said, let's make a heist movie. Let's all get together and just like goof around and have a good time with it. We'll make things explode. We'll have Leonardo da Vinci in it. It'll be great. <laughs> and it's funny because as I was reading or doing my research and reading up on all this information, you know, because I, I, I started doing my research kind of like halfway through the movie and reading that part, I'm just like, it gave me a much deeper appreciation for <laughs> what was on, you know, what I was watching, which is kind of cool. However, the end result, it, this is one of those hindsight things. You know, like, you know, when, when friends get, you know, really good ripping drunk and they're like, you know what, man, when we get, make it big, we're going to start a bar together. We're going to run a bar. It's going to be all good. We're going we're gonna to call it this and that, and that. And like, yeah, that's a good idea when you're drunk. Cocktails and dreams. Yeah, cocktails and dreams. Please don't sober up. Okay. However... <laughs> While Bruce Willis was promoting the movie 12 Monkeys, he said in an interview that if he could travel anywhere in time, he would go back to just before production began on Hudson Hawk and stop himself from making the movie. That's Bruno, that's Bruno the hindsight. So. Oh, he turned on the movie. <laughs> um, now, I have to mention the quote unquote accolades. And sometimes a movie does get a, you know some good accolades. And sometimes it is fair for the <laughs> Razzies. And at the 12th yes. annual Razzies, Hudson Hawk quote unquote cleaned up. It won for worst picture. Michael Lehman won for worst director. And the movie won for worst screenplay. But we're not done there. Bruce Willis was nominated for Worst Actor, but he lost to Kevin Costner for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Richard, that was the right call. <laughs> Richard E. Grant 
was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor, he lost to Dan Aykroyd for the movie Nothing But Trouble. Sandra Bernhardt, Sandra Bernhardt was nominated for Worst Supporting Actress. She lost to Sean Young for A Kiss Before Dying. Now, there's a caveat on the Sean Young because Sean Young, in the same movie, was nominated for Worst Supporting Actress and Worst Actress because she played twins. So she ah. won. So Sean Young won for Worst Actress, The Twin That Lived, and she won for Worst Supporting Actress for The Twin Who Died. I I, I love how this plays wow. out, but yet still somehow Sandra Bernhardt didn't win. Um, so I, You know what? <laughs> I don't know with Sandra Bernhardt whether or not that's actually what she's like aiming for in her performances. Mm-hmm. There's something about a Sandra Bernhardt performance uh, that's, it's not unlike watching a car accident. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not good. You don't want to be a part of it, but you can't really stop from watching it. It's, it's like Gilbert Gottfried in female form. It's just not, you know. Yes, that's an <laughs> accurate description. So in total, uh, this movie, Hudson Hawk, tied for second in total nominations at the Razzies that year was six. The film that had the most Razzie nominations at the 12th annual Razzies was Cool as Ice, starring Vanilla Ice, with seven nominations. Also, at the 1991 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, this movie did not win Worst Picture, but it was in the final five nominations. Nothing but trouble won for that one. So... It's not competition that year. I tell you, right? Do Do you feel good or bad for winning worst screen, worst movie? Like, yay, we won! What did we win? Oh crap, we won! Hmm. Well, I mean, it lets you know that you were committed to whatever you were doing. Uh, (laughs) You know, you you went all the way with it. It, 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 If you're going to go wrong, go wrong with Flair, and they certainly, they certainly did in this film. commit all the way with every single bit so um you realize I don't know, they didn't win best film but you know they won worst film so they were at one end of the spectrum so that, that'll be the name of the sequel hudson hawk 2 wrong but strong i like it uh we mentioned i would love a sequel oh my god it would be awesome <laughs> oh my god I, in fact anyway carry on sorry there's so much i want out of this film but i have so many spin-off ideas that we can talk about Oh dear God! Are we going to get drunk and we're going to come up with an idea saying, "If ever we're in the, we're, we have the power to make a Hudson Hawk two, <laughs> wrong but strong, this is how it's going to be, and we're going to do this together." Oh God, we are. We're going to make that uh, pact, aren't we? <laughs> it's it, yeah. Except it's not going to be wrong but strong. It's going to be Revenge of the Candy Bars. Mm, yes. Oh, but, oh Butterfinger. Oh, Butterfinger. Oh, Butterfinger. This film, we, I mentioned earlier on that, that that it kind of took the shine off of TriStar because this was one of the last films that TriStar did before kind of being bought by, sorry, rescued by Sony. <laughs> it was a yeah. $65 million budget with a worldwide gross of $17 million total. But it, it, didn't, did, it well. didn't start so bad, though. Uh, you mentioned May 24th, 1991, this this film hits the big screen. It debuted at number three that week uh, with a $7 million total take at the uh, domestic box office. Number one, the debut was Backdraft, which uh, is a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Yes. Um, just not Backdraft 2. 
And yes, there was a backdraft no. too. Uh, in second place was What About Bob, which again, classic. Also debuting this week. So Hudson Hawk did better than these debuting movies. Okay. I'm going to say this again. Hudson Hawk did better <laughs> than these debuting movies. At number seven was Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. At number five was Only the Lonely. And at number four was Thelma and Louise. Hudson Hawk debuted better than Thelma and Louise. Uh, <laughs> it's it's got to take a Which second to you know sink just in. how big a draw Bruce Willis was. Mm-hmm. Which is surprising, too, because when you think about it, this came out a year after, and he put out three films in 1991, one of them good. The good one was Die Hard 2. You know, basically, you yes. know, John McClane at Christmas again, you know, at the airport. Yeah. The other two... Look who's talking to now, admittedly, he's just the voice of Mikey, so he can kind of get away with that like voice work, it's all good. But this came out the year after Bonfire of the Vanities, which no, is that was known as yeah, for him. That was that was not that was not good, it was not good. So it makes you wonder though if Bonfire of the Vanities maybe took some of the shine off of what Bruce Willis could do. And that probably affected what the critics rated this. Currently, 31 years later, this film sits at a 33% Rotten Tomato meter with a 56% audience score. But over at Metacritic, it's lower. It's at a 17 Metascore. So I'm going to put this to you before we get to the breakdown. 17% 17% Metascore, 33% Tomatometer, or 56% Audience Score. What, who's closer to you, do you think, to what this movie actually should be sitting at? It's definitely the Audience Score. It's, I mean, I know it's not a marvelous movie, and there's all sorts of errors and just simple basic filmmaking they make through the whole thing, but it's a lot of fun. Mm. It's a romp, uh, and it is, it is unapologetically silly. Uh, it's a good time. I don't think 17% is anywhere near. 33%, we're getting closer. Uh, I think 56% is is probably uh, the most accurate representation. I do have to admit that I love the fact that we're doing a Bruce Willis film in the year in a year where the Razzies actually have a category for worst Bruce Willis film of the year. That's because he's put out, I think, like seven films in 2021. Seven. And none of them seven. are good. None of them are good. <laughs> like it's, it's it's not even close. Like there are there are two movies in there that have a zero percent tomato meter. Like it's not good. What? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Which ones? Uh, uh, out of death is one of them. Which how are you out of death? Did you run out of death? Are you handing death out to people? <laughs> Sorry, all out of death. Come back tomorrow. We ran out. <laughs> We've, we've got supply line issues. We're all out of death today. Sorry. Um, yeah. So Bruce Willis, 31 years later, is all out of death. But- Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. 
Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We are all out of stats, so it's time to get to the breakdown here. Uh, we have to start at the top of the billing. Uh, Bruce Willis, Hudson Hawk himself. How was Bruce Willis for you? He was, admittedly, he actually wasn't my favorite part of this. He has some moments. He has some bits where he actually is like committing to the thing. Uh, but a lot of the time, he's just kind of walking through it and throwing off lines. And you get the sense in a lot of it that they're taking the... Uh, Let's just do one more take. Just give us something fresh. And that's the take that they took in a lot of it. So uh, Bruce Willis is okay in this one. It is interesting because it does come after two different Die Hard movies. Uh, so you get like, you know, even though John McClane is a bit of a, a quippy action hero, it's still like a like classic action film. Um, but this reminded me not of John McClane. It reminded me of... Uh, if I remember the character name correctly, David Addison from Moonlighting, yes. because that was from a much yes. more, you know, that's that's much more in line with kind of like the character that he's playing in Hudson Hawk. Like, I would agree. Moonlighting was such a fun, quirky comedy in, in an era where you had shows like The Scarecrow, Mrs. King, shows like that. Like, like Moonlighting was an absolute gem and really what, you know, brought, Bruce Willis to become the big megastar that he was at the time. And you cannot deny that Bruce Willis was box office gold uh, for a big stretch of the 90s, regardless of how how out of death he might be today. Um, but this was this played to Bruce Willis's um, comedic talents, and they are there. They are definitely yes. there. Um, you have to think that in later years, he becomes almost a caricature of his action hero self. Um, like, I love to see when actors get to that point where they're just like, okay, I'm done taking myself seriously. Chuck Norris is there. Like Chuck, Chuck Norris is there. He, I think this is why Bruce Willis has had such a, a string of bad films, because at this point, it's all just kind of meta Bruce Willis. Mm. We, got a, we got peak actor during the, um, the, the, the Pulp Fiction 12 Monkeys days, but... Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think he's really putting in in the acting department these days. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it you know in a sci-fi realm because he did go a, a big stretch of like doing a lot of sci-fi films and a lot of them were really good. Like I love surrogates, and of course you have to mention the Fifth Element. The Fifth Element is just so much fun. You have dry. to mention the Fifth Element, and yes. da- and Dallas has a lot of that humor that you saw. You know. 
not just in Moonlighting, not just in Die Hard, but in Hudson Hawk as well. So if you like, you know, quirky, fun, quippy Bruce Willis with hair, which, you know, you have to remember he had hair back then. It was receding, but he had hair, right? Like this, this was arguably the best Bruce Willis era and the comedy that he put out in it was maybe some of the, the, the better aspects of what he was doing in the nineties. Um, but a lot of it did feel a little bit more slapstick, but I know apparently when they were writing this script, they were going for that, uh, Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin kind of feel. And you can kind of see that between him and Danny Aiello. Get it. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, uh, it's Danny Aiello who really, he's, he's one of the things that I love about this film. Can we move on to Danny at this point? Oh, oh that, 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 I like your segue. Yes. Let's move on to Danny Aiello. <laughs> screw Hudson Hogg. Let's get to Danny Aiello. Screw, screw Bruce. Like, uh, <laughs> Danny Aiello, uh, is brilliant in this film. Like he, he's such, he doesn't, uh, pull any punches. He goes all the way with this Tommy Five Tone character. Uh, he's uh, he runs the bar. He's the best friend. He's the betrayer. He's the redeemer. Uh, he's got the quirky punchline. Did I miss anything? Right? And can you just and he keeps bringing it scene after scene after scene. And every time you cut to him, you can see that he's there and he's on. Uh, this is, in fact, one of my favorite things that I've ever seen Danny Aiello in. He's done so many fantastic things, of course, throughout his entire career, but this is by far uh, one of my favorite, top three at least. Knowing the the origin of this script, you know, the you know, the 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 creation of these characters from Bruce Willis and Robert Kraft, and you have to think that, you know, as they're writing it, a lot of those personalities of each other kind of go into these characters. So, you know, Hudson Hawk is very much Bruce Willis, you know, which makes you think that Danny Aiello is patterned after Robert Kraft and just seeing the way and because Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis were friends before this movie started. It apparently was like one of those very like, close. Yeah, apparently it was like it was well, duh, no doubt we're going to get Danny Aiello because because you know that's that right. But that's you have that. to think that you know some of the character of Danny Aiello in this film probably comes from Robert Kraft. And when you when you realize the origin of the script and like the passion project that it is for these two, you see the camaraderie between Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis in this. And it makes you smile a little bit more because that means two friends hung out, created these characters, created this story, actually lived up to a promise that they made each other and regardless of how well the film did or how well it didn't uh spoiler alert it didn't do well but still like that their friendship made this film happen which makes this film that much more enjoyable because it is that 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 dream come reality and when you watch them together every scene it's just the pair of them Uh, particularly that first third of the film where it's mostly just the two of them they look like they're just having a really good time in every scene like you can see that the energy is there that they're clicking that the timing feels good uh I imagine the set must have been a riot to be on, but they produce some really good scenes out of this. It is interesting because there are reports that Bruce Willis and Michael Lehman kind of clashed while making this film. Um, and we'll get to, we'll get to the direction in a little bit there, but it's, if there, if there was tension on the set between Bruce Willis and Michael Lehman, because this really is, you know, Bruce Willis's passion project and Michael Lehman's brought on to direct it. And if this is only yeah. Michael Lehman's third film at the time, and, you know, here is Bruce Willis throwing around his diehard weight, you know, it's, yep. you know, you have to think that, you know, 
if there's that tension, it didn't show in the performance by Bruce Willis, especially when he was with Danny Aiello. It's like that, 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 that is a friendship right there in writing. You didn't see it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it comes off in the whole thing. It comes off in the, in where else do you, how many times do you see Danny Aiello singing in films? It, right. It, you never see it. But in this film, he sings like he's right out there and singing. He's having a very good time. We talked about Annie McDowell at the beginning of the podcast a little bit. Um, I, I think they, I think you're right. I think they definitely got the right person for this movie because as good an actress as Isabella Rossellini is, I just cannot picture her sitting there staring off into the distance and making dolphin noises because, no. yeah, that happened. <laughs> what does the color blue taste like? <laughs> I, no, I can't see her entering that line. Like, it just, that would not be, somebody squeezing her ears and having her make dolphin noises just wouldn't be in her wheelhouse, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Annie McDowell is just an absolute gem to begin with. The nice thing about it is that despite, you know, dolphin noises aside, you know, <laughs> you know there, there, there is a lot of over the top in this film. Um, but I like the fact that she's kind of pulled back a little bit and kind of grounds everybody around her. Because, again, if you have too many people quipping through the whole film, um, that it becomes, you know, it becomes Ghostbusters answer the call. It becomes, yes. you know, when, when everyone wants to be the Bill Murray, someone's got to be the Egon, right? So. Yes. Uh, and she fulfills that role beautifully. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, uh, as you say, she's grounded. She, she brings that, her delivery of lines, where she has that, such that light voice, but she, uh, with such, uh, impact with every single line she's almost whispering against all of the the bravado that's coming off from Aiello and 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 Willis uh and of course trying to be in the same room with Sandra Bernhardt and trying to play the quiet role and still hold a presence you can't just get that from any actor like not anybody can just pull that off but there she is there's Andy McDowell just quietly commanding a room as she as she uh quietly plays this 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 nun spy <laughs> of this madcap adventure which, which dolphin sound making nun spy um i'm yes. all for that film <laughs> i am all Absolutely. for that film that should be it so they should, we should get the the backstory on that one <laughs> why did she feel she needed to go for, you know for dolphin noises i don't know but we'll, we'll go there you mentioned sandra yes. bernhardt um oh yes i'm I, I, I'm actually going to step away from this one because, oh. you know, and, and, and I don't mean this as a slight against her. I just don't know if there's a movie that I like her in. And it's one of those things. Where- See, and I'm the exact opposite. I don't know that there's a movie that I have not liked her in because I, she's. I want to hear this every now. time. I, okay, so so sell me on Sandra Bernhardt here because I'm I'm I don't I don't want to sit here and crap all over her, but you know I I want to hear from someone who loves her in her roles. What is it about Sandra Bernhardt? She defies every expectation for a leading lady, uh, or even a supporting actress, which is most often the roles that she ends up getting. She she is not classically beautiful. Uh, she does not have. Um, a smile to launch a thousand ships. Uh, she does not have a delicate voice. She comes out as loud and brash, and she's honest about it every time, and she's unapologetic. More than that, she leans into it. She makes it part of the characters that she plays. Um, and at no, no point does she 
claim to be anything other than she is. And she brings that sort of different dimension to uh, those female characters that you can see in cinema. You know when you get a Sandra Bernhardt character that you're not going to get some... um, uh, some Mary Sue that's all of a sudden coming in. You're not going to get some classic trope. You're going to get something that is off the wall, uh, that is probably inappropriate at some point in time. Um, and she's just going to lean into it without apology. Uh, she's got varying levels from loud to very loud, but it's all in that range. And you know that's what you're going to get with the Sandra Bernhardt character. Uh, and she brings a texture to everything that she does. Like there's, you can't, you can't put Sandra Bernhard in a film and not expect parts of it to be crunchy. She's the little texture that you bring, like putting just a little bit of crunch in your baking. You throw a little Sandra Bernhard in there just to add a little bit of texture. And I think she does that with everything that she that she brings to the film. I think for me, for this film, and, you know, and by the way, uh, I, I'm now based on how you've just described that maybe i can go into her films and you know and be almost prepared for that but i think in this one and just maybe hear me out on this one here i talked about too much crazy on screen and we cannot deny that richard e grant brought a whole lot of maniacal crazy to his role as well so the two of them being kind of out crazy each other it reminds me of batman forever you had Jim Carrey as the Riddler. Yes. And you had Tommy Lee Jones trying to Jim Carrey his way through through uh, through Two-Face. And it Two-Face, just be- yes. It, it just became a little too much. Like, I, I almost wanted Tommy Lee Jones to pull it back. A, Two-Face is not that crazy. But B, when you got too crazy like that... Like where's where's the where's the difference where's the where's the contrast? Um, I will accept that note. I think in this one, uh, we between between Grant and Bernhard, it was it was a lot, and it mm-hmm. was a lot to take. Um, there weren't too many scenes where it was uh, <laughs> where they had it toned down. There was about a five second clip there in Italy just before Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello fall off the balcony, where they're a little bit restrained. But no, for the most part, they're both over the top. I mean, and that was where the characters is as they were written. Um, I don't know if this is a performance issue or if this is, in fact, at the end of the day, a script issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, in fact, they maybe wanted to write them slightly differently. Speaking of Richard E. Grant, uh, A, loved him in Loki. Just loved yes. him in Loki. Oh, so good. And he does pull off these like these over-the-top characterizations when when he's in there. I was getting some real hardcore Nick Cage vibes as I, as I'm watching his performance in this. You know, it's like funny you mentioned that. Yes, mm-hmm. like like almost I, like uh, that that face off Nick Cage kind of you know pull his face off. It's like okay, dial it down, Nick Cage. You know, okay, go 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 back to <laughs> go back to the city of angels, Nick Cage. You know, you're kind of scaring me. I'll I'll put the bunny down, Nick Cage. Like seriously. <laughs> But but um, he's definitely got those vibes in this film. Uh, Richard E. Grant does. Um, I, there was something. I mean, and you you mentioned Nick Cage, and that was that was uh, somebody else who probably could have played this role. Actually, as you mentioned it, he might have been able to pull it off. Um, but Richard E. Grant does know how to go for those over the top moments, and he does in his acting bring those big big energy moments. Uh, and what's funny, though, is when you watch this film, unlike Sandra Bernhardt, who is over the top at every beat for every moment of the, the time that she's on screen, 
Richard E. Grant just kind of projects that energy that he's going to be over the top, but he actually is only filling the amount of space and, and time that he needs to. Again, that that wonderful uh, limo scene. He only gets enough energy to fill that limo space, whereas when Sandra Bernhard's in the limo, she's still filling all of Italy with that energy. He's he's much more. Uh, what's the what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, like small, surgical, small package combustible. Small package combustible moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in that respect, in the Battle of the Crazy, I think he takes this one just a little bit better, if not for nothing else than the fact that he's got a little bit more control over his crazy. Okay. So I know you, like myself, are a Doctor Who fan. If you take Richard E. Grant's character from this and you take that same characterization, that same energy, and you make him the master. Not Doctor Who, but you of make course. him the master. Tell Absolutely. me, tell me Richard E. Grant wouldn't be such a good master. Oh, he would be fantastic. It would be wonderful. It would be it would be uh, a worthy portrayal of the master in all of his nuance and craziness. Oh. Um, the universe I would, I would watch that. The universe needs to make this happen. Stephen Moffat, if you are actually listening to this show right now, A, thank you. Uh but B, go ahead, take the idea. It is yours, free of charge. All good. The world will thank you. But you know, give us a high five. You know, send me a little TARDIS toy. I'm fine with that. Um James? consultant credit anything exactly i'll take it i'll take an executive producer credit for that episode it's fine um james coburn smooth talking so so good and so evil at the same time like there's just you know with every smile and every sneer it's it's just he oozes a whole ton of goodness into this character He's, again, I mean, the cast, just looking at the cast for this film, you get blown away by the number of huge, huge acting names that are in this. Um, And having James Coburn just kind of thrown in to this ridiculous little rogue CIA agent role, uh, running these these new CIA young shots. Um, And he does... (laughs) And he just brings it. Like, he says, great, that's the character. I'm going to play it. And he brings all of that James Coburn gravitas and charm and wit and timing. Uh, like, you, you can't, you just can't buy stardom like that. Like, mm-hmm. he, he brings so much credibility to the film just by just by the moments that he's on screen. It's, it's really quite funny. It, he literally brought a smile that was basically your death warrant in this one. Yes. Like, you know, just, just. Yeah, he's smiling now. He's gonna stab you in the back later, but he's smiling he's now. And that back. smile says, "I'm gonna stab you in the back," and you know what's gonna come. But it's- and then he smiles at everybody, and mm-hmm. you know he's just screwing everybody every step of the way. It's so good, and it's it's not even sociopathic. It's very it's very almost it's more maniacal, but but like very maniacal. restrained maniacal. Uh, and when he talks about how he misses communism, and yet, and of course, 1991 communism hadn't been gone that long that point right um but he it is that callback to uh that energy from um dr strange love uh you know it's that same sort of cold war uh 
psychopathic United States uh, intelligence energy that everybody loved to consume for a long time because the ends justified the means. And he's playing that, and he's playing it with with gusto as a character who's like, no, this is why I got into this, man. Like, this is this is what I get up for breakfast for. Every he, he's, do this. he's literally the CIA guy who doesn't want to admit that the Cold War is over. So he's, you know, he's doing these... You know the, these plots and ruse and and machinations. You know because he it's almost like he needs it. He needs yes. something to be going on so he can justify his own personality. It's I get so so much in James Coburn. There's it's a so good. there's a lot of smaller character roles in this that kind of stood out for me here. And I want to start with with one that's a it's a great performance with an unfortunate character name here. It's Lorraine Toussaint who plays Almond Joy. Uh, yes. <laughs> I had, Joy. I didn't, I didn't recognize her. I didn't, or rather I didn't remember that that's who played that role mm-hmm. uh, until I just went back and rewatched it. I went, Oh my God, it's, she's so young. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where it's like, if ever there is one person in this film that might be competent in what they are doing because uh, everyone doesn't seem to have a clue what they're doing. They're kind of like, you know, you know, do, do a little <laughs> yes, plot here, the- do a little backstab here, punch Bruce Willis in the face here, you know, give him some kind of knockout drug. I, I don't know how many times I think Bruce Willis was knocked out or put to sleep more often than, than Boba Fett went to sleep in the back to tank in the book of Boba Fett. And I'm talking the entire series. Like he, <laughs> he spent a lot of time out, just out. He did. And they moved him around continents. I was thinking about that when I was trying to figure out what the, what the script motivation was. And then I remembered, oh, right. Hudson Hawk just got out of jail. Probably doesn't have a passport. It's probably the easiest way to get him to Italy this quickly. Right. Which, by the way, if you want to get to Italy real fast, that that would be the way to go. And with, with, with that, that would be the way to go. Right. And with that many, like, you know, packing peanuts, just, you know, that, that's a nice comfy ride. You know, it would be you, a good sleep. If you can stand the, you know, sub-zero temperatures at 45,000 feet in the plane while you're flying. But, you know, you know it's, it's a minor thing. That's what thing. the sleeping pill is for, or mm. injection in this case. <laughs> but, but... When you have characters like Kit Kat, that was played by David Caruso, and you have yes. characters like Butterfinger, who are these, and then the Germans that never talked, like uh, Icky and Uger, whatever their names were, right? Like, yeah. you, ha- you have these so out there characters that Almond Joy just seems like, well, we got to have someone who knows what the hell they're doing. Yes. Uh, and she takes that role. And again, she's when we talk about those those beats that ground the film, you know, Everybody around her is being ridiculous and silly and campy, and she comes in in this role with this just uh, uh, a little bit more um, pessimistic and snide, and uh, a little bit more realistic about the world. And she brings a grounding to the to to, the, to those moments, uh, even in the midst of this uh, <laughs> Cold War boss who's ordering her around. She's going to do her job, and she's going to do it well, but she doesn't have to be happy about it. Yeah, it's almost like she's the she's the one character that would like pause for a moment and go i'm surrounded by idiots and then just continue to do her job exactly because That's, and she and she plays the role brilliantly mm-hmm. because yeah and butterfinger uh, d- does not know what the hell he's doing uh, although i do love the little things there's like read your book you know he starts reading green eggs and hams like to yourself to like, yourself <laughs> to yourself like butter butterfinger is just like you almost want to hug him even though you know he'll probably break you with the return hug he almost want to hug him and then yeah and, and but then, he would be smiling the whole time 
And then to realize that that's David Caruso as Kit Kat. Oh, like it's you have you have to <laughs> Mark. I'm going to let you explain Kit Kat to our listeners because I don't know if I can give Kit Kat's character justice in this. You know, you know the stereotypes. You know the tropes. You always need somebody who's the master of disguise. Uh, and Kit Kat in this uh, particular uh, masterpiece is that character. He comes comes in and he's always changing costumes and he's dressing up as something else. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't no. actually talk through the entire thing. He's got all these little cards uh, that he brings out uh, and snaps in front of you, you know, like he's an old-timey silent film. Uh, there's this beautiful scene uh, where he does Hudson Hawk, where he comes up dressed as Hudson Hawk and he stands behind Bruce Willis and he's mocking Bruce Willis's hand gestures, which you guys can't see me doing right now, but I'm doing them right now. And right at the end of the beat, of course, Hudson Hawk, knowing that Kit Kat's behind him, just kind of elbows him in the nose. And Kit Kat takes it and goes, yep. yep. And then hands him a card, watch out for the blue wire. You know, and then he shows up in all these places. He at one point uh, in the scene, he's actually he's dressed as a statue. You have no idea it's Kit Kat uh, <laughs> until somebody calls to him, Kit Kat, and his head turns. You go, oh my god, there he was the whole time. He's been standing there the whole scene the, in this statue role. The fascinating part of this is, go ahead, go watch this movie. You know, and and you know, pick out Kit Kat, right, and then go watch First Blood. Because he's in that too. And it's just such a difference. Like beyond like <laughs> like if Kit Kat were to put on sunglasses and then all of a sudden the who kicks in, you know, so we get our our, our seat. Like, no, no. You no. you can't no. you can't watch this movie and then go watch him in in like CSI Miami. You it just no can not happen. Um yeah, no, those the the CSI Miami's the the those the base gravelly uh, roles that he plays. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not that. There's something about this where, he, I mean, he never speaks a word, but you can tell that there's something about this character that is cool. Not trying to be cool, but rather just like that guy who has no idea he's cool. He's just kind of doing his thing. Uh, and that's Kit Kat. He's just this guy doing his thing uh, with a tragic ending, unfortunately. But, you know, he holds up that card for Andy Aiello and he, he, it's just or man, Andy McDowell rather, and it's like I always liked you. It's like oh, Kit Kat, <laughs> your dying words. We ha- we have to be very honest about this film though, and that there are some issues with it. And I'm there curious, few, yeah, yeah there, there's a few, um, but I wonder where those problems come from. Is it from the script, or is it from the director? Is it like to you? You know, again, knowing that this is, you know, one of your like all time fave Bruce Willis movies, if you're being honest with yourself and really critiquing this film, where does it where does it lag? Uh I think I think part of it is a script problem. They either they either needed to make it just a little bit tighter, uh, or they needed to make it longer. They really needed to take the time to tell all of the bits of the story that they were cutting out. Um so undoubtedly some of the problem is script. I think, though, that direction ultimately ended up being the thing that sunk this film. I don't think our director, uh, Michael Landon, was ultimately on board with the vision that Bruce Willis had for this film. And, of course, if you're acting in a film that you've written, uh, 
and you've got the director sort of in between you and your script and it's not running well, you're not going to get the best performance out of everybody. You're not going to get the scenes that you want to create out of the whole thing. If you don't have a cohesive vision uh, between your actors and your director, uh, it's just not going to work. And so I think if we have to lay blame somewhere, that's probably where I put it. See, and I'm curious too, because I mean, as mentioned before, we, we did talk about airheads on this show and there was another movie where you had a very large cast with some very, you know, capable of being over the top actors, you know, Brendan Fraser at the time, Adam Sandler, yes. um, you know, like, like you have these, these actors, but yet they were pulled back. Like even Adam Sandler was was pulled back. Buscemi was like everyone kind of played their role and everyone was kind of balanced and, and crazy when they needed to be, but not everyone was being crazy at the time. So there was a really good balancing of the talent on screen in airheads, but at times it felt like this was like you know, it, it almost felt like Animaniacs on steroids with all the pratfalls and the and the physical comedy that was kind of going on and some of the especially especially near the end by the way 31 year old film uh i'm not even saying spoilers if you haven't seen it by now that that's on you guys um but like <laughs> but there's the fight between james coburn and bruce willis at the end of this that is literally yes. may as well have looney tunes music behind it because it is so cartoonish Oh, it's so campy, and it does, and it, and it sticks out as not being in uh, tone with the rest of the film. I mean, mm-hmm. that whole shtick with getting Bruce Willis to go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, and then uh, Coburn's setting up to you know drop kick him, and Bruce Willis stops and says, "Oh, my hat!" And then Coburn goes flying over him and over the wall. You know, it's like, yeah, that didn't really fit with everything else. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, it was a slapsticky kind of comedy. But that really was much more Buster Keaton uh, than the rest of the film warranted. You know what it reminds me of? Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up the movie Airplane. Airplane, first of all, is just comedy gold, right? Like if if you haven't, you know, like sat there on a spring day while the baseball game is in rain delay, and all of a sudden Airplane comes on, and you don't you if you don't sit there and watch it, you're missing out on something. And everyone kind of plays it straight while all the crazies happening around them. And that's really part of the comedy gold, except for one guy in the, in like the air traffic control tower, you know, and he's the one who's like just so over the top and all his lines seem so forced and all that. Right. And I'm just like, if, if I had to change one thing in airplane, I'm taking this character out because he doesn't really belong around everyone else it's like we have to have a flamboyant character let's just let him make all these crappy jokes and and the screaming over the top yeah yeah the obvious jokes that you know are coming and and yes i hear what you're saying yeah um this film has some of those moments some <laughs> let's be honest some <laughs> it's, it's kind of it's kind of punctuated with these moments the whole way through where they're just like ah we might have been able to do without that punchline ah we probably could have been okay there but to the same token as well there's there was some talk that this film was kind of misrepresented when it came to advertising because you think about it the theaters know and the, the movie companies know that they've got you know 
Die Hard 2, Die Hard, big action star Bruce Willis in this movie. This is this is the driving factor behind this film. So when promotional material was put out for this film, it was you know promoted more like an action film and not the slapstick pratfall comedy that it really is. So I yes. wonder if people went into this, you know, much like yourself to the premiere, if you went into this saying, okay, well, I saw the trailers. I'm pretty sure I kind of know what to expect. And then you walk in. And you get whiplash from the complete tonality change by the end of the film. Like you said, like it's like, you know, like a, like a Looney Tunes sketch. It's like, did you feel like a bait and switch when you first went to see this film? I think this is why I enjoyed the film so much because I knew nothing. I hadn't seen any trailers. The only reason I was going to this film was because I found a free pass in the rain. Uh, I knew nothing about it. Um so for me, there was no tonality switch. I, I came in, I accepted it for what it was straight off the top, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Having gone back and watched the trailers afterwards, I'm like, no, you guys are totally misrepresenting this film. Mm-hmm. If I was going to the theater to see what was presented in the trailers, I would have been really, really upset because that's not what that film is at all. But that's like doing a trailer for Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and treating it like a documentary. You're, you're, you're yes, going to confuse very- your audience. <laughs> It would. Uh, and if you were trying to build it as sort of a, a high quality documentary on top of that, mm-hmm. you watch this film. This is not a high quality film. They did not break the bank making this film. No. Uh, no, no, they broke, they broke their own bank. <laughs> they, they broke their own bank. They, no, actually, they, I think they broke Sony's bank because they had to, like, you know, go in and buy the rest of the stock and do a full reorg. Like, you know, it, if you ever watch the Robot <laughs> Chicken episode where they have, um, you know, Pluto Nash Day, because Pluto Nash was one of those movies where it's like people probably lost their jobs on that one. I guarantee yes. you people probably lost their jobs because of Hudson Hawk because it did it did so poorly. But, it, you know, the, the, the bait and switch kind of reminded me too of, a, uh, if you remember the movie Event Horizon. Event Horizon, oh, yeah. when the trailers were out, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a really cool sci-fi plot, and I love sci-fi films, and I'm going to go into this, and I start going, and, like, the first three quarters of the film, it's like, this is a really cool sci-fi film. I'm right into this. It's all good. And then, like, you know, there's, like, what, 20 minutes left of the film, and all of a sudden, like, and you know, entrails are spewing out, and it's turned into a horror film, and somehow they've gone to hell because yeah. they went through it. Like, I'm like, what's going on here? Why? Why? But then if you go in to watch it the second time, knowing that it's a horror movie with a slow build, you can appreciate it more. So I think it's one of those things where, you know, to our listeners, if you're listening to this, um, go into Hudson Hawk. Like, don't watch the trailers. Don't watch the no, trailers and forget everything it. that you've heard about it. Um, go ahead, read up the story about how Bruce Wilson and his buddy Robert Kraft there, you know, wrote this script together like good buddies kind of thing like kept their dream come true enjoy the enjoy the friendships that you see on screen and go in thinking that and i think you'll enjoy it a little bit more than you know taking a look at a metascore and going yee maybe not maybe not so it's come to this point of the show so i have to put it to you morgan who is your mvp of 1991's hudson hawk it's a tough call uh, I've been waiting for this question, uh, and it's and I and I have to. It's between uh, it's between uh, Danny Aiello and Andy McDowell, uh, and I think at the end of the day, I have to give it to Andy McDowell. Uh, she was probably the outsider in making this film. Uh, 
She was sort of flown in for the role, and she nails it the whole way through. I have to go with Annie McDowell as my MVP. I'm not going to lie. I had Annie McDowell on my list of, you know, on my short list for the best part of this film. And I also had Lorraine Toussaint, actually, as, as, a, as a short list nominee as well. But I have to go with Danny Aiello. Yeah, Bruce. I can see it. Bruce Willis is a little over the top, and as much as I enjoyed seeing Bruce Willis be fun again, and that's I think part of it too. What I really enjoyed about this, we have been inundated over the last thirty-one years with dead serious shaved head action star Bruce Willis, who's all out of death, and then we kind of get to go back to this and realize that oh yeah, he was a lot of fun. He's uh, and that is one of the things that makes this film really really enjoyable even on repeated watches is you can see that he's having a good time while he's making it it's a shame that he doesn't view it fondly in retrospect because i think you had a good time at the time Mm -hmm. uh most of the time um you know and you get to see him out and about in public and he's very personable and there's a lot about this role that's much more like uh the genuine bruce willis if bruce willis ever goes back to doing movies you know maybe not necessarily like this but he started to with red like I really enjoyed the the comedic aspect of Red. Um, I have, albeit honest, I haven't actually watched Red too. Um, just because you know they struck gold with Red, they really did. But going going back to doing more quirkier films, like the, like the whole nine yards, well, the whole nine yards. That was what I was just going to mention. You know, when he does these quirkier films, I mean, yes, he's still playing sort of the 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 criminal, the gangster, the 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 New York. Um, crime scene kind of character and there's always that sort of similar element to all these but he plays them well and he seems to have fun doing it and it's fun to watch him play those sorts mm-hmm. and that i think that's the biggest thing you know is that between bruce willis and danny aiello you saw the fun that made the movie happen between Bruce Willis and Robert Kraft, because clearly Danny Aiello is is the you know embodiment of what Robert Kraft is to Bruce Willis. Um, it just so happens that it's also he's also his friend as well. Like just watching these guys have fun for an hour and forty minutes, and again knowing what it took to get this film made, regardless of the outcome, um, Bruce Willis good on him for for having fun with it but danny aiello is is the smile inducer of this film morgan thank you so much for coming onto the show and talking hudson hawk you know you go, i'm gonna have to bring you back on here we're gonna talk you know another horrible movie somewhere oh, down we'll do it again we'll do something else oh absolutely and to you the listeners here's the deal if you think there is a movie that is unfairly maligned or that you think is so bad that there is no way in hell that we're going to find anything good to say about it, hit me up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast. Toss a movie out there. We'll watch it. We will dissect it. And we will find the A grades in those B movies. This has been It's Not That Bad. I'm Jay Morgan. Thank you so much for this. We will catch you all next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 